Now verse 3. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for by occupation. They were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Now if you drop down to verse 18. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed to Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at uh, Centuria, for he had taken a vow, and he came to Ephesus. He left them there, that is, he left Aquila and Priscilla there at Ephesus, left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay longer with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. Now go down to verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, he's a secondary figure here, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, he came to Ephesus. Now this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. Uh, to put to basically say the baptism of John was John was a forerunner of Christ. John was looking forward to the Messiah. He had identified Christ as the Messiah. So all he knew was looking forward to the Messiah. So when he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, when Aquila and Priscilla heard them, they took him aside and explained to him to the way of God more accurately. Uh, meaning what? I want to tell you something, Paulus. You identify Christ, and he has come but I want you to understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and his ascension. What does all that mean? So they instructed Apollos, this couple, in these things. They explained to him the way God more accurately. And when he de- desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scripture that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, so the, the instruction, the time that they took, uh, took and set aside was very instructive to him. He apparently had a very good grasp of uh, scripture uh, already, so all they were doing was, was uh, submitting that. So Aquila and Priscilla. Let me, let me talk about Paul first. Paul's coming from Athens, all right? Here in chapter 18, verse 1, he's coming from Athens. He's by himself, Okay, uh, he's left Timothy and Silas. They're they're back working with the church, working with the believers. Uh, and Athens was the center of idolatry, and he's coming to Corinth, which is the center of immorality. In Athens, remember that's where Paul uh, said to them, he said, "I perceive, you know, I've seen all these idols, and I perceive that you have a idol here to the unknown God. I want to tell you about him. I want to tell you about Jesus Christ." Remember, some mocked, some ignored him, and others believed at, at Athens. Uh, but this is, it was the center of idolatry. Uh, interestingly enough, it was a, it's also the cultural and intellectual center. I don't know if there's a connection. I'm just saying as a center of idolatry, this, Athens was also known for their culture and their intellectual endeavors. So he comes to Corinth, which is the center of immorality. Uh, what was the distinguished mark about uh, Corinth? It was a seaside town, of course. It was cosmopolitan. It had a revolving population of 200,000 people because you had people coming and going. It was a, a military base. So you had the Roman soldiers. You had uh, a, a center of finance. 
and uh, commercial endeavors. This was in Corinth, a center of immorality. In fact, a, a fellow by the name of R.C. Lenski wrote, Corinth was a wicked city even as larger cities of the empire were at that time. The very term Corinthian came to mean lost or insensible to virtue, principle, or decay. To Corinthianize meant to practice immorality without restraint. We find in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you don't need to turn there unless you want to, but 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, we find out Paul's state of mind as he comes to Corinth. As he writes back to me, he said, I came, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. The point is, he's talking about you know, the, the importance of being reminded of hum- humility. You know, God often brings things in our lives to keep us uh, in, that, in that area to realize, you know what, without God, I'm nothing. And that's what this thorn in the flesh was buffeting Paul. So he says, uh, concerning these things, I pleaded with the Lord three times, and it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. Weakness fear, and much trembling. When Paul came to Corinth, he had been imprisoned in Philippi. He had been chased out of Berea and Thessalonica, and he'd been mocked in Athens. He was exhausted physically and emotionally. So that's the weakness and fear has to do with that physical and emotional uh, exhaustion. Trembling, I believe, has to do with the, with the enormous responsibility of the spiritual responsibility as he came again to a new city to present Christ. So he says, when I, when I came, this, is, this was my state of mind when I came. So when he came by himself, he comes and meets, in chapter 18 of Acts, verse 1 and 2 and 3, Aquila and Priscilla. Did he know they were there? I don't believe he did. I believe this was their first meeting. They seemed to have a, a kindred spirit because they were both tent makers. Usually a Jewish son took up the trade of his father. That's why when we often refer to Jesus, he probably learned carpentry. When we look at um, Peter and Andrew, who were brothers, they were fishermen because their dad was a fisherman. And so this is not that unusual uh, that they had to learn a trade. So uh, Aquila's trade was a tent maker. It just so happened that his wife uh, also took up that trade. Now that was not required by law or by any rule. They, they uh, did that together. Anyway, Aquila and Priscilla. When one reads the New Testament, it is striking how few couples are mentioned in the first century church. Do you ever notice that? There's only one other notorious couple mentioned. Ananias and Sapphira. And of course, they were struck dead because they glide in the early church. We find men, both married and single, who are prominent. We find women who are prominent in the church, but we find very few couples of those few, Aquila and Priscilla especially, stand out. So that's where we're looking at Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, They work together. 
They were tent makers. They served together. This was teamwork. We see that with the house church, which we'll talk about a little bit later. We'll see that with the time of sitting, uh, sitting Apollos down and instructing him. Uh, but not only did they serve together, but they mentioned together. Seven times in Scripture, Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned, and they are always mentioned together. There's never separated. A man by the name of Robert Talley wrote, In the New Testament, there are very few instructions of family members. We do have, for instance, in Colossians and Ephesians, specifically instruction to family members. But that's actually rare when you think the uh, amount of scripture that there's written. Uh, Proverbs in the Old Testament. There is a reason for this. Paul, James, John, Peter, Luke, and other writers of the New Testament were writing to a larger family, the family of God. The body of Christ, the church. Usually, they assume that they were writing to the church should be applied to the family. In fact, when they are writing to the family, we find that it is always in the context of the local church. Remember Paul's uh, challenge to the husbands to love their wives? It was in the context of what? The local church. So we are, he continues, we are going to look at Aquila and Priscilla and see three principles uh, that were written to the church at large and how they practice these principles as a couple. They're mentioned together, they work together, they serve together. So this is where we're going. Three principles written to the church at large and how they were practiced by this couple. This, as a couple, the point is this, as a couple, they put into practice the instructions that were given in a larger context uh, to the church itself. First principle, principle of hospitality. How do they practice? Open house. Definition. Uh, to be generous, uh, to be thoughtful, uh, kind uh, toward others. First Peter chapter 4, verse 9. Uh, this is a command applicable to all believers. Peter writes, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. To entertain strangers, there in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. Uh, this, is a change, uh, this is a challenge, by the way, to these Hebrew Christians, uh, these Hebrew believers, to demonstrate compassion uh, through the entertainment of strangers. It said, let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers. Specifically, in this context of Hebrews chapter 13, he's talking to believers entertaining believers. Specifically, it has to do with seeking out those who know Christ, but they're strangers to you. Make them friends. Uh, so when we talk about the principle of hospitality, be thoughtful, kind towards others, to entertain strangers, and then Romans twelve thirteen to pursue the love of strangers. Uh, this is a blanket statement. He says, Paul writes, he says, distribute to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. That word given is, means to pursue. In other words, this is, this is aggressively seeking out uh, to be hospitable, to be generous, to be giving, to entertain as well as to get to know strangers. Uh, that's, that's a part of the, the uh, hospitality. Okay, how do they demonstrate it? Acts chapter 18. Paul came. They were tent makers. He came and worked with them. And if you look later in that chapter, you'll see that he stayed with them for 18 months. He came to them because they had uh, that, that uh, common bond of tent makers, but he stayed with them. 
because they had a common bond in Christ. They were believers. Uh, wouldn't you like to have been a fly in the wall and hear the conversations they must have been having? Now, when did Aquila and Priscilla become believers? We don't know. They, they, they may have been believers, I think, probably before they came to Corinth. Nonetheless, uh, they, they were spending time with Paul, and Paul was staying with them because they were believers. Uh, they didn't know Christ. They probably just drank up the teachings that Paul uh, had for them. Uh, by the way, uh, Aquila and Priscilla came to Corinth because they were kicked out of Rome. Uh, Claudius, there was a great persecution going on. against. They had to blame somebody, so they blamed the Jews. And so they, they expelled the Jews, made them, forced them to leave. And so anti-Semitism has been alive and well for a long, long time. Uh, which reminds me, I want to tell you this story. Well, uh, I was with Jeff and Linda uh, after the baptismal. We were leaving to go home, and uh, a man by the name of Martin, now Martin's about 50, 55, someplace in there, came by, and he was a member of the church at Erlanger. And so Jeff, I, I'm sorry, I wish I had gotten a picture of him so you could see what he looked like. But he, he introduced me. Martin was attending church as, in his teenage years. It was an evangelical church, and he accepted Christ as his personal savior at the age of 14. He went home and told his mother immediately that he had gotten saved. She slapped him as hard as she possibly could and said, we are Jewish. He never knew he was Jewish until that moment. They never talked about being Jewish. What had happened during World War II to protect themselves, the Jews burned all the genealogy records. And after World War II, that kind of pretty much carried over to denying their Jewish heritage, even in the Germany post-World War II Germany. And so he grew up in a home then in full denial of their Jewish heritage until he accepted Christ as his personal Savior. And they forbid him to attend church anymore. He made a goal of reading through the Bible once a year. He finally graduated. He went off to the university, and at the university he got connected up with a, a Christian group, and they continued to, to uh, disciple him. And he became, in fact, it reminds me a little bit of Apollos. He became very well-versed in the scriptures. And uh, he is a, has a Ph.D. in biochemistry uh, or uh, chemical engineering. Uh, and he is head of the, um, it's like the DNA testing. But he's, he's the head of it in Bavaria, which would be like similar to, I believe, southeast United States. Okay, this is, this is a big deal. He's, he's one of the men that came to, when found out Jeff was starting this evangelical Christian church, he came to him and uh, started talking with him. And Jeff said it was like a, a doctrinal examination. I mean, he, he asked me everything that I could ever think of that I'd ever studied in my preparation in ministry to come to ministry, even after five years of being in the pastorate. And he said, and, and at the conclusion of that, he looked at me and said, you know what, I'm going to come with you and start the church here at Erlanger. 
Anyway, uh, that, that was Martin. He, he grew up not knowing he was Jewish. He accepted Christ as personal Savior. Uh, by the way, uh, he, again, interesting man. Speaks German, English, French, and get this, Chinese. While he was in the university, he began a ministry among the Chinese. And what he does on Sunday afternoons and evenings, he runs a Chinese church and reaches out to the Chinese community, which is the Asian community, which I guess is pretty large uh, there in uh, Erlanger because it's a university town. Just a very interesting man. But anyway, I got off track. But I had to tell you, that was a great story. To see how God works and brings people together, just like Paul with Aquila and Priscilla. How did they demonstrate it? They had an open house. Uh, Paul stayed with them. We, we also see that uh, when Aquila and Priscilla heard Apollos, they opened their house, brought him in. Uh, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Aquila and Priscilla had gone with Paul from Corinth to Ephesus. Remember, he left them there. And he writes back, he says, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily, or, or writes, he says, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily with the church that is in their house. They had house church. Then we find in Acts chapter, or Romans chapter 16, as Paul closes out his letter to Romans. Apparently, uh, the restrictions lifted, and Aquila and Priscilla were able to go back to Rome. And so when Paul closes out his letter that he's writing to the Roman believers in chapter 16, he says, Likewise, greet the church that is in Aquila and, Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla's house. He tries saying that fast ten times. But anyway, in Aquila and Priscilla's house. They, they had... They practiced the principle of hospitality. They had an open house. They sought to know people, to get to know people, make strangers friends. Now listen to me. That's taking a risk. But the rewards are worth the risk. People will hurt you. They'll disappoint you. It doesn't matter. As, a, as we look at the scriptures, we are to practice the principle of Hospitality. In this case, how do they practice that? With an open house. Hospitality in the ancient world often included keeping guests overnight or longer. In New Testament times, travel was dangerous. Uh, inns were notoriously evil, scarce, expensive. So believers often opened their home to travelers, especially to fellow believers. They practiced that principle of hospitality by opening their house. When we were with my son in Italy... Uh, we met at a house church. Again, there's a missionary that's, that's meeting there, and this family opened their house. It was, it was really like a villa. And uh, they had, uh, there was 50 of us there, actually, uh, for that service. They are practicing hospitality. The principle of hospitality, they had an open house. Second principle is the principle of generosity. Define, how do you define Generosity. Well, it's to give with liberality. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For we, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. To give with liberality. Now, I want you to understand the context. The context is talking about forgiveness. Isn't that interesting? And it will be measured back to you. The point is this, God, in his grace, sent Christ to die on the cross for our sins, that we could have eternal life. Think of what God has forgiven you, and how he has forgiven you. Cannot we practice forgiveness 
and put that into practice liberally. The second thing you see there is to willingly let go. There in Second Corinthians chapter 8, 1 to 4. To give freely or willingly. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Then in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and a deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. To give freely, to willingly. In context, this has to do with money. They practiced the principle of generosity. They had an open hand. Put another way is, we had to hold things loosely. We have a tendency to, to grip them. If you go back in Nehemiah when they had the great revival during the book of Nehemiah, there was a time in which Ezra stood up and read the scripture, and then they prayed. And it talks about the people. They stood up, heads bowed, and hands raised high. What's significant about that? God, I bring nothing, and whatever you put in my hand, I realize it's from you. And therefore, I hold it loosely. God has blessed us in many ways. Maybe it's financially, maybe it's in some other fashion. But hold it loosely. Don't grip it. Don't hold on to it. To willingly let go. They gave out of their poverty. There in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 4. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15. To be unselfish. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though I more abundantly, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. The, the context here simply is this, life for life. I give my life so you can have life. That's what Paul's saying, to be unselfish. The principle of generosity is to give with liberality, to willingly let go, to be unselfish. How did Ananias and Sapphira practice that? With an open hand. A trapper devised a monkey trap using a hollow gourd into which peanuts were poured through a small hole. The monkey would reach in and grab the peanuts, but the hole was too small to remove the closed hand. Unwilling to lose the treasure, the monkey was caught. What are you tightly holding on to? What are you unwilling to let go? A relationship? A possession? A plan? An attitude? A closed fist, or like Aquila and Priscilla, an open, open hand. They put into practice open house, open hand, and the third principle is an open heart, the principle of surrender. To submit to the authority of another, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Now, background, Romans 12, uh, verses 1 to 11 is doctrine. Chapters 1 to 11, Romans chapter 1 to 11 is doctrine. Chapter 12, or through 16, is duty. What Paul is saying is, this is, how you, I want, this is how I want you to put into practice this doctrine. And it is very significant that the very first thing he starts with is surrender. So in verse 1 he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, this is not a command, but, he, but basically what he's saying is, listen, I want your attention. I want you to hear this. This is very important. So he says, there, I, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, based on what happened, Romans chapter 1 through 11, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. 
The, the word pictures are significant, a living sacrifice, because it, when they sacrificed, it was a dead sacrifice. It didn't matter whether you were coming from the Jewish background or from the Gentile background. When they had a sacrifice, it was normally dead. But he says, I, I ask that you present yourself, or, or I beseech you, I encourage you to present yourself a living sacrifice. In other words, put yourself on the altar and don't get off. It's surrender. To, to submit to the authority of another. Submit your, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God. I'm submitting myself to God. Even as Christ prayed in the garden, he said what? Not my will, but your will be done. Secondly, to relinquish control to another. There in Galatians chapter 2, uh, verse 20, I think may capture it the best to relinquish relinquish control to another. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not I who live, but it's Christ who lives. That's why he also wrote in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He relinquished control to another. He also wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ comes, in the significant phrase, he says, who is our life? Which the question is, who is your life? To relinquish control to another. The principle of surrender there in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, to become more like Christ. Philippians 2, 5 is in that context where it talks about how Christ humbled himself but became obedient unto the cross, even, uh, even the uh, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But Philippians 2.5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. To become more like Christ. How can I become more like Christ? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. As you read through those uh, first eight verses, there's two things that stand out about having the mind of Christ. Helpfulness and humility. To have the mind of Christ, a life of surrender, the principle of surrender, to have the mind of Christ, become more and more like Christ. How can I become more like Christ? To have his mind. Of course, we're reminded of Romans 8, 28, 29, that you might be conformed to the image of his son. Why do things happen to us? He's chiseling away. He's molding us to be more like Christ. I came across this illustration. Michelangelo was once asked in reference to a sculpture of an angel that he created how he could separate a block of stone and create such a masterpiece. In response, he said it was simple. All you have to do is take away everything in that block that doesn't look like an angel. If you know even the slightest bit about sculpture, you know that it involves hammering and essentially cutting off chunks of block and rock. That is what total surrender means. It means that we give up the playing of our games and our attempts at hiding different areas of our life from God and allow him to take away everything that doesn't look like Christ, to be more like Christ. How did they demonstrate it? With an open heart. In Romans chapter 16, he greets Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers, my co-laborers, my helpers in the ministry, my under-helpers in Christ. 
fellow workers, co-laborers, he is identifying, in other words, put it this way, to identify Aquila and Priscilla is to identify with Paul. To identify with Paul is to identify with Aquila and Priscilla. Why? Because he looked at them as co-laborers. They, have a, they had an open heart. They opened their home for believers. They set, a, set down and instructed Apollos. Wherever they moved to, and, and they, they moved at least, we know, at least three times, these were significant moves from Corinth to Ephesus and then back to Rome. Wherever they went, they had an open heart for God. They were being directed and controlled and, and uh, surrendered themselves to God. They had an open heart. Aquila and Priscilla. Open heart, open hand, and open house. How are you as a believer or as a family, applying the principles of hospitality, generosity, and surrender. What are you holding on to? What is God seeking to chisel away that needs to fall away? Even as a church, not just an individual, but as a church, as well as a couple, God has brought us together for a unique reason. When I think of marriage, and and in fact, I I had talk to Carla as we've been married 40 years, you know, she's my compliment, she's my companion, she's my friend, she's my compatriot. These are the things she is. God has not made a mistake in leading you and working in you to bring you to the mate that God has brought you to. As I think of Alyssa and Adam, it's all part of God's plan to serve God as a couple, not just as individuals. It's a unique opportunity. And Aquila and Priscilla, what a testimony of their service. Open hand, open heart, open house. Let's all stand together. This, is, this message today was not for unbelievers. This was written to Christians. Certainly as a believer, you need to examine your life, your surrender, your generosity, your hospitality. But if you are here this morning and you do not know Christ as your Savior, you've never, like Martin, he put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Like Christiana, she trusted Christ even when she was so deeply involved in the occult. Everything was against Martin, his parents, his family. But as we, as you're, if you're here and you do not know Christ as your Savior, I would encourage you to speak with me afterward. I'll have someone show you from the Scriptures how to be saved. But if you are here this morning as a believer, examine your life. Open heart, open hand, open house. Father, we pray now as we close our service with a song, "Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Father, I pray indeed that that may be true of our lives, that may be true of our marriages, may be true of our homes, may be true of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.